For those of you that were here last week, you know that I was supposed to have been in the pulpit, but there was a cold that robbed me of my ability to speak. Now, the St. Francis often has said, or St. Francis is attributed with having said, preach the gospel and use words only when necessary. That's an admonition for how you're to live your life, and I think if I'd stood here for 11 minutes and just gazed at you, it wouldn't have been fulfilling for either of us. So I'm grateful for Bill to have put together his beautiful sermon so much, and I will say that I was with you last week because I was able to join via live stream, and it was wonderful to be with you that way. So it's my other way of encouraging you that if you can't be in worship, please join us via live stream. And I ask you now to please pray with me. God of grace, you have given us minds to know you and hearts to love you and voices to sing your praise. As we come to hear your word, silence in us any voice but yours and let your spirit startle us with your truths that may be revealed in new ways so that we might come to be followers of your son and faithful disciples of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. The letter of James with a a salutation and a message to a particular community is called just that. It's a letter. However, the content of his writing is considered in the tradition of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature, think within scripture of Proverbs or Job. Wisdom literature communicates how to live the good life. And for James, he professes that by being wholly committed to God and relying upon God's wisdom, that alone will lead you to the good life. So listen for God's word and listen for this wisdom as I read from the first chapter of the first verse of James. James, a servant of God and our Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face the time of trial, consider it nothing but joy. Consider it because you know that testing of your faith produces endurance, and let that endurance have its full effect, so that you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And if you lack in wisdom, ask God, who will give you generously and ungrudgingly anything that you ask for. But ask in faith, never doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed and battered by the wind, For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, cannot receive that which God will so generously give. Here ends our reading. The New York Times had a recent article entitled, How to Handle the Dreaded Reply-All Moment. It described the sinking feeling you have when you have sent an email with a personal and private message to a large group of recipients. And it's very likely that personal and private message might have been a little snarky or it might not have been something that you wanted a lot of people to read. I know firsthand what it's like to have fingers that don't connect to my brain sometimes and the mea culpas that I've needed to offer to those. The author identified the sinking feeling is so unique as requiring a new name. She writes, maybe we should call it embarrassment or forward boating or scent insensibilities. Now, those are silly words that describes, cannot describe their regret that we might have when we do something like that on email. I want to talk about this reply-all dilemma as part of a larger challenge that we slip into when we think that multitasking is a boost to productivity. 
So I ask you, can I really do a good job on the care and feeding of the email in my inbox when I'm on a conference call at the same time? Can I do the care and feeding of my email inbox when I'm listening to a podcast? I know that I can't. I've also proven that in the evening when I try to look at the evening's newspaper and listen to the nightly news and have a conversation with my husband while I'm trying to start dinner, that is nothing but a recipe for just being rude and I can't do anything right. Multitasking, I believe, is just a euphemism for not paying attention and it causes more calamities than and a drain on productivity. The solution provided by the author, though, I think really missed the mark. She thought that what we needed to do in this reply all trap was she gave us instructions for if you had Gmail or Outlook of how to disable reply all. Shouldn't we just start paying attention? Shouldn't we give our whole attention to what we're doing at that point in time? Now, you don't need to go very far to find study upon study by clinicians and therapists and academics of every stripe of the dangers of trying to compartmentalize our lives and say, for this 15 minutes, I'm going to do this, and for this hour, I'm going to be devoted to this, and this time of the day is when I get to be this. Compartmentalizing ourselves into competing and distinct roles and responsibilities just leads to fragmentation. And whenever we try to serve many masters, we fragment our lives. And fragmented lives cannot withstand the trials that will surely befall us because if we're so fragmented, what do we do in the time of a calamity? And fragmented lives also miss the wonder of God's creation evident right in front of us. Now last month, financial titan John Bogle died. You might remember that he was the founder of the Vanguard Fund. He's credited with having revolutionized mutual fund investing, and he started with the belief that investors can't outsmart the market, and an investment advisor probably doesn't always have the investor's best interests at heart when his compensation is based upon commissions. And the firm is interested in shareholder profit. To focus exclusively on the customer, Bogle created the first index funds. These funds invested broadly in the market. They diversified their investment risks. They eliminated all that expensive analysis. They reduced trading volumes, and it reduced, resulted in a low-cost model. I'm not here to pitch index funds to you, though. But he went further. The Vanguard, which he founded, was conceived as a mutual fund, so even those profits went to the customer. There was nothing glamorous about this idea. It didn't take a room of quants or math majors to figure it out. All it was was transparent and valuable for the customer. Nobel-winning economist Paul Samuelson praised Bogle's creation of the index fund as equal importance to, I quote, equal importance to the invention of the wheel, the wine and cheese party, the alphabet, and the Gutenberg printing. But when the index fund was first introduced, Wall Street critics didn't shower it with praise. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Bogle was ridiculed with derision of who would want average returns? Why would anyone settle for mediocre when you can be reaching for the stars? Time and profits proved the individual investor would in fact benefit. And it was Warren Buffett who told the Wall Street Journal, I quote, 
If all investors had heeded his ideas, they would be hundreds of billions of dollars better off than they are now. Several years ago at his alma mater, Princeton University, Bogle spoke candidly of the origin of his business philosophy. You see, shortly after he finished college, both of his parents died in very quick succession. And with so much thrust upon him, he recalls how sorely his faith was tested. And yet in these trials, he felt more deeply convicted of the promise of God that this life is not the end and how we live has infinite consequences. With humility and with great gravity, he claims he survived only by having faith in something far greater than himself. And it's this faith that influenced all aspects of his life, most importantly, his work. And he credits it with holding him in the storms of Wall Street. Bogle cites scripture's warning of, you may not serve two masters, as cautioning away from the duplicitous loyalties that would pit customer against shareholder. And most of all, he relied upon an inner wisdom evident in all religions. And that inner wisdom that he held up so firmly is the golden rule. And this is how Bogle describes it. The golden rule is its own reward, not making yourself wealthy. Now, for all the wealth that Bogle created through the Vanguard's funds, his riches paled in comparison to his peers. And if we were to keep score on financial terms, the most ubiquitous lens on Wall Street, Bogle lost. Edward C. Johnson, who was the chairman of the Fidelity Investments, somewhat of a peer, he has a net worth valued at perhaps $7.4 billion, whereas when Bogle died, it was generally estimated he was worth only about $80 million. But Bogle's devotion to faith was even more costly in that he purportedly gave away half of his income each year. But you see, money was not the measure that Bogle cared about. When he rose in the morning, he embraced life as given to him each and every day by God. He weathered the storms of life with an inherent faith that God alone is creator and redeemer, and God is the master he chose to serve. Of about the same age, and certainly the same generation, we had another titan that was, who was lost also in January. Attention is the beginning of devotion. It's an oft-quoted phrase that was composed by the poet Mary Oliver. Her sparse writing lends itself well to bumper stickers and to inspirational Pinterest posts, so you may have seen these around, or perhaps you've committed one of her very short but so meaningful poems to memory. She was a prolific author with more than 20 volumes of verse, and she was awarded a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award, and it's unusual for a poet, but she certainly was a phenomenon in her own life. It was rare that she gave an interview. She wanted her work to speak for herself, and she never really wanted to describe or defend her work. But on one occasion, she spoke glancingly of her childhood, and she confided that she was a victim of sexual abuse. She recalls, and I quote, it was a very bad childhood for everybody, every member of the household and not just for myself, I think. And I escaped it barely with years of trouble. You see, I got saved by the world. As a child, Oliver stopped going to Sunday school. 
when she became unable to accept the claims of Christian resurrection, but she notes that perhaps a lot of those other children continued to go to Sunday school and they didn't believe, but I've continued to ponder the resurrection for my entire life. Oliver found by paying attention to life, it was through creation's mysteries. She looked with the patient eye at the graceful movement of a grasshopper. She marveled at the winged flight of the wild goose. She wrote soul-stirring verses of what the canine human relationship tells us about ourselves. It's our dogs from whom we can learn so much. And she pursued a life of purpose and being fully present. From the wisdom gained through years of such endurance, Oliver believed it's always insufficient to try to put words around God, what God is or who God is. But her wonder and quest to describe the divine is how she encountered a life that was always endlessly fascinating and incredibly satisfying. In a collection of essays that she wrote entitled Upstream, she writes of finding and nursing a wounded gull on Christmas Day. After weeks of hand-feeding it and letting it convalesce in her bathtub, she wrote of its eminent demise. And here's a brief excerpt. Gull, of course, was a piece of the sky. His eyes said so. This is not fact. This is the other part of knowing something when there is no proof, but neither is there any way towards disbelief. Imagine lifting the lid from a jar and finding it not filled with darkness but with light, Bird was like that, startling, elegant, alive. But the day come when we knew it would at last, and then the non-responsiveness of his eyes was terrible. It was late February when I came downstairs as usual before dawn, and then I returned upstairs to M. The sweep and play of the morning was just beginning, its tender colors reaching everywhere. The little gull has died, I said to M, as I lifted the shades and morning light streamed in to our lives. Mary Oliver held a lens of faith to the world, seeing creation without the distortion of secular arrogance. She was instilled with the reverence for God's capacity to create and recreate. And it's with such wisdom that was etched into her soul that she was able to imagine a grace that would cover her in the own end of her life. Now there was financial titan John Bogle and a woman of words, Mary Oliver. One could say that they appeared to live lives of polar opposites. Armed with sophisticated economic theory, Bogle fought obtuse financial products while Mary Oliver seemed to spend her life wandering in the woods with a spiral notebook and a pencil. But yet they had so much in common. Both faced devastating losses early. Both were tested by heartbreak. And both lived as though they had embraced the wisdom from James' letter. If you recall, James counseled, you will face trials in your life and let the testing of faith bring you endurance. And if you lack anything, turn to God. You see, it's resilience that's promised to us in that endurance, and it's resilience that's promised to us by God for those of us that ask in faith. Both Oliver and Bogle reminded us that they remained faithful to their moral compass, and they looked with a lens of faith, which revealed new pathways for Bogle 
and truths that Oliver could see and trust. Now this past week we started a new class on miracles and we asked those who were present, many of you, to define what is a miracle. I will say as one doing a lot of research for the last months on miracles, definitions are hard to come by that everyone would agree with. In fact, definitions are hard to come by, period. But this is what you said. Miracles are not what is expected. Miracles are contrary to the natural course of events. And a miracle is in the eye of the beholder. Now, there wasn't much agreement on what a miracle is, nor does there need to be, because a miracle is in the eye of the beholder. But there was a recurring thought from both classes and amongst many of the people there that, I quote, it takes a willingness to believe miracles may exist in order to actually see them. We need to believe in God first, and when we believe in God first, we can see so much of what is possible through God's power. You see, our mindset determines what we can see when we look at the world. Are we open to seeing creation as a wonder given to us by God? As the winds might throw us off balance, what will we cling to for stability? Will we believe in God and God's power to help us overcome things? And when the world tells us we're not worthy, will we turn to God who always assures us of our inherent lovableness? It's God alone who gives generously to all who ask. Now, Mary Oliver lived with a single devotion of reverence for nature. She looked with a critical eye and saw the miraculous as not outside of nature, but the result of God's creative power that brings everything into being. And it's with that I'd like to close with one of her poems. I've refused to live locked in the orderly house of reasons and proofs. The world I live in and believe in is wider than that. Anyway, what's wrong with maybe? You wouldn't believe what I've seen once or twice. I'll just tell you this. Only if there are angels in your head will you ever possibly see one. May it be so. May we fill our minds with angels and our hearts with love for God, and may that be the miraculous ways in which we choose to live. Alleluia. Amen.